Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out Swiss and European fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're joined by Dave Birch and we're going to talk about digital currencies and the future of banking, digitalization and things like this. So I'm very curious about, you know, your views about the future, how this is going to all pan out and uh, maybe debunk some of the myths and, uh, and also talk about your new book, right? So how are you today, Dave? Uh, very well, Rudy, and thank you very much for inviting me along. Great. Well, thank you for joining. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you get to do what you do today? <laughs> uh, well, I, I spent a long time working in consultancy. Um, I started when I left university, I started working um, and I became a specialist in secure communications. Um, and then that took me into the sort of finance sector because you know, finance started to want to know about secure communications and that took me into electronic payments and that took me into uh, two things really, digital money and digital identity. And I just found that I thought those were really interesting and that they really were the sort of building blocks for the future of financial services. And that's why I sort of focused on those and I've been there ever since really. So um Yes, no, no, no! Amazing revelations. That's just how I how I stayed in it. And after a few years, I began to write, and people liked um, my blogs and books and things. So then, more recently, I decided to focus more on on writing than on consultancy. So I still I still am one third time with Consult Hyperion, which is the consulting company that I helped to found. And I spend the rest of my time divided between writing and speaking, and I have a few advisory and think tank roles as well. So, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> right. So you're a keynote speaker, you're an author, an advisor, commentator on digital financial services. So how does it all fit together? This seems to be, you know, a modern way of doing things, right? Versus some people who just think like, you know, I go to the office and that takes 150% <laughs> of my time and then. Then if I'm lucky, I go home and maybe I play golf on the weekend or tennis or something, right? No, well, it, it, there's a sort of feedback loop um, is the truth, Rudy, which is doing some consulting work keeps you connected with the issues and you understand what's facing. I mean, my, my clients historically tend to have been at the larger end of the scale. So you, you understand the issues facing the industry and the, and the different stakeholders. Then because I, I write and speak, that gets me out to talk with a lot of other people. I mean, you know, one of the fun things for me, if you get to, if you get to speak at an event is you get to hear the other speakers and you get to meet people and you have the luxury that a lot of people don't have of listening to a great many different people. And frankly, and this is going to sound funny, but I, I mean it in a 
in a in a real sense you know basically arguing with smart people is is how you learn really quickly and i i quite enjoy that so there's a there's a feedback between the consulting and the speaking which is very that's worked out very well for me right so you know you've you founded a digital finance consultancy if i understand it right so what are the key areas of digital finance that you're focusing on and your key client types the the ones who actually are not only talking about it at conferences but they do hire you and they want to make some changes well i would i would say i mean i'm i'm changing my sort of feeling about this now because if you'd have asked me a couple of years ago um i probably would have said that i thought maybe digital money would take a little longer to arrive and that the priority probably should be digital identity um right now i would say though because of the acceleration of interest in digital currency and in particular central bank digital currency um most people are not surprised by the idea that they might have some digital money in their pocket fairly soon um whereas digital identity which i think in many ways is actually more important is really taking much longer to come together and i i would have imagined that i would have had some sort of bank digital identity application on my phone by now but um but we're not seeing it yet so right now the focus is on on the digital money right so i know that you're interested in the future of money digital finance and digital identity as you just said so uh, have you adjusted your projections or views of the future also because of the pandemic or why do you think that the interest is more on the digital currency rather than the digital identity well if we deal with the pandemic first i mean i would say that the pandemic has actually not changed my opinions about things i mean i think what the pandemic has done is accelerated the transition into right. a more digital economy i mean it's it's where we were going anyway i think but but the the pandemic has speeded things up but actually the digital currency focus um comes before the pandemic because it was really last year you know because for a long time i come from the more technological side of things so for a long time um the technologies to deliver digital currency had had and in fact i'm probably many of your listeners won't be old enough to remember any of this stuff but about 25 years ago in europe there was a sort of first wave of digital money digicash and mondex and semp and semepa and danmon and avon and chipper and chipnet and all of these kind of things which never really gained real traction but there were a lot of very valuable lessons learned at that time and and i think also at that time perhaps it was too bank centric too led by banks and that's that's kind of not what we needed but but anyway the point is um we've had the technology to provide that digital currency for a long time uh, we have all of the infrastructure that we need we've got mobile phones and we've got chips and we've got the internet and everything else but really last year it was because the central bankers started to say and you know you could argue that this might have been in response to facebook's libra but it could also be you know just a sort of shifting in the tectonic plates of finance you had people like mark carney who was the governor of the bank of england say perhaps it was time to start thinking about some sort of digital currency and i think that's really you know that's really what caused the big shift so 
and obviously, of course, I started work on the book about digital currency, you know, long before the the pandemic. So I think that had changed already. I think what the pandemic has shown up is that the trend towards cashlessness is really a trend towards, and I, I won't even say contactless because I don't even. I think contactless is an interim. I think what we're heading towards is contact-free technologies. We're going more in the Asian direction of having, you know, super smartphone apps, and you you don't touch things at all at point of sale or in shops, or you know, you just you scan a QR code or you get something by Bluetooth or or whatever. So I think, you know, the the transition towards digital currency was in place before the pandemic. The pandemic is accelerating a transition, not to contactless, but to contact free. So that's the first part of my answer. The second part of my answer is the other thing that the crisis has shown up is that the lack of digital identity infrastructure has proved very problematic. So in terms of you know the government dispersing uh, you know some sort of financial support to businesses, when you know when all of a sudden you have businesses that never had to interact online before have suddenly got to interact online with their bank, and it takes weeks literally for the bank to work out. Yes, this is a real business. Yes, this person really is the owner of the business. Yes, this is their account. Yes, this is it. That's actually proved, you know, quite a problem. And so I hope what will come out of the pandemic um, is a new focus on perhaps a more sophisticated digital identity infrastructure. And I, I noticed today, I'm just reading the news feeds today, I noticed that Apple has filed some patents about digital identity. Um, and I guess when when Apple do it, that's really when people sit up and take notice, isn't it? Right. And uh, obviously, this is an issue. But you reminded me that in the US, uh, the IRS were sending checks, apparently, in the envelopes that were not, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, they were not attracting attention. That was the point. But people thought this is just junk mail. So they were throwing it away. Well, I think there were two. Yeah, there were two lessons I took from that. One, I mean, it was a, it's really surprising, you know, in many other countries to see that the the US is still printing and posting out physical checks when there are a great many countries where people have never seen a check and wouldn't even know what it was. Um so it's sort of odd that in a sophisticated developed economy um they're posting out checks many of them to dead people as it turned out. And then, of course, the other thing is for some people, they were posting prepaid cards and people thought that it was some sort of spam or some sort of promotion. So just threw them away. So it's rather odd. And yet in other countries, in I mean, I just yesterday was watching a fascinating video from the Better Than Cash project talking about how it was done in Colombia, where the Colombian government encouraged families that needed support to sign up for mobile wallets of one form or another and delivered the support directly into those mobile wallets. So it's, it's yeah, it's been a very fascinating set of case studies throughout the virus. Right. And uh, you have a new book that just came out. It's called The Currency Cold War. So what are the key points of the book? I know you talk about cash and cryptography and the hash rates and things like this. So is it strategic <laughs> or is it technical or is it both? Oh, no, it's not really for technical readers. I, I you know, I, I just, uh, I just want them to understand a, a, a tiny little bit about what the technologies do, 
Um, they don't need to know how the technologies work. Well, look, the, I, I broke the book into three parts. So first of all, I wanted to explain what digital currency actually is. And um, and I have, uh, I think, an interesting way of thinking about it as a, a kind of evolutionary tree. Um, I think perhaps some of the younger people who only know about Bitcoin think it was a kind of unique revelation. I think they may not understand that Bitcoin comes from a a sort of family tree of technologies that have been growing and developing and will undoubtedly continue to grow and develop. So uh, the first part of the book is explaining what digital currency is and how it's evolved to this point. Again, not for technical readers, really. <clears throat> then the second part of the book is why are we talking about digital currency now? So what, what has happened? Because we've had the technology, there are business cases. Why are the central banks talking about it now? Why is it all coming together? And I try to look at a fair few different perspectives in that to see why, why now for digital currency. And then <clears throat> the third part of the book looks at what it means, like what, what's the implications of going to digital currency. And I thought it would be interesting to make the third part of the book, because you know, you have to kind of have a you have to have a story for books and make it interesting for people. And I thought the contrasts in, you know, US and China, the sort of East and West, private and public. I mean, I thought those kind of tensions would make for an interesting way of of thinking about the future. And so in the end, I chose, <clears throat> you know, the US private sector Libra initiative as one example. And then I, I used the Chinese public uh, People's Bank of China digital currency as the other. And I use those to illustrate points about how digital currency work and how it will change things and what it means. And then I finish by discussing, well, you know, perhaps you know the more serious issues around it which are which are you know i think i think many people looking at digital currency may not realize what implications it has in more global geopolitical terms because you know we live in a world that has a certain monetary system which is not a law of physics i mean it's a system that was constructed after the second world war the bretton woods agreement and the way that money works with the dollar as the prime um, global reserve currency, with the dollar accounting for, I can't remember the figure, three quarters of all trades globally, one leg is settled in US dollars. Those US dollar transactions are all settled through the New York banks. That gives America a very interesting position in terms of soft power. And if that was to change, then it would change a lot of other dynamics around it. So I finish by trying to explain to people, please don't think about digital currency as some obscure argument between Libra people and Bitcoin people and smart card people. And, you know, it, it's much more important and actually much more interesting than that. Right. And uh, obviously, you argue that the new type of economy, the digital economy will need new type of money, i.e. digital. Um, yeah. But when I look at the, let's say, news flow over the last year or so, I, obviously, you see some issues around Libra project, right? Uh, the governors of central banks have been talking about uh, quite confidently about e-currency of, of, of their countries. 
but then I have a feeling that that it it kind of quieted down. So, um, wh- why do you think this is happening? What are the lessons learned? Because I sense from you that you still believe in the long run we're going to get there. Yeah. Um, well, look, if you if you in terms of the news flow as you as you call it, I think I think it's sort of. Well, let, let, let me let me break that argument in, answer into two point two points. So, first of all, you know the the fact that the People's Bank of China have a digital currency up and running in four cities at the moment is not some sort of knee jerk reaction to Libra. I, you know, I, I don't think the People's Bank of China does knee jerk reactions to anything. You know, they have they have a long term strategy here. But Libra has certainly been a catalyst for getting people to talk about the topic again and think about it again. But if you look at the central bank research in this space, it goes back a long time. And, you know, for example, the the Bank of England's research on central bank digital currencies from, from, you know, two, three, four years ago is really interesting and contains, and same for the ECB. So the idea of perhaps going back to thinking about central bank digital currency as a real thing, a real thing that banks should be working on and not simply some idle thought for the future or some PowerPoint predates Libra. Um, but it's undoubtedly true that, that Libra you know, brought a lot of those discussions into the mainstream and got people talking about the whole subject again. So the setbacks for Libra in terms of the negative reactions to it because obviously uh, lots of jurisdictions were concerned about having a form of money which is essentially beyond their control uh you know for for good reasons i don't want to get into the politics of that but um but libra has come back and said well okay we're going to kind of reform it as a you know effectively a global electronic wallet to store you know various forms of facebook money that will be pegged to you know the local currencies so you'll have facebook dollars and facebook yeah well i shouldn't call it facebook money but you know what i mean you'll have libra dollars and libra yen and libra euros in your wallet and you'll be able to spend them so so the kind of the the, the sort of the negative reaction to it which i have to say wasn't entirely unexpected um hasn't held back the development of central bank digital currency at all I mean, in fact, you could argue that you can see a kind of harmonious future there because if if Libra puts a, a wallet into every Facebook user's browser, every Facebook user's mobile phone, and those wallets can be used to store um, digital euros, well, then that is a central bank digital currency. It, it's just it saves the central bank all of the trouble of managing the users and the user interface. So as long as the European Central Bank is in control of the issuing of the electronic euros into the Facebook users' wallets, then actually that's not a problem. That's in fact is very helpful. Right. Um, I liked your recent article by fintech hello techfin on Forbes. So what do you mean by this? Uh, will big tech enter and dominate financial services like they do in their current domains, or you know where does that leave banks, open banking, and fintechs? Or are the are is big tech only going to attack a certain parts of the value chain? Well, what I meant by that was so so if you take that example of Facebook with the with the digital wallets, 
What you've seen in China, where Alipay and WeChat have that function, is that the banks lose transaction revenues because obviously transactions are going through Alipay and WeChat. But actually, it didn't really bother them that much. I mean, I remember running some courses for Chinese banks four or five years ago, uh, looking at the future of financial services in different ways. And the fact that the transaction revenues were going to go away was already factored into long-term plans. So the loss of transaction revenues, which I think in, I can't remember the figure, but I think in China last year, it was probably in the region of a billion dollars in transaction revenues went to WeChat and Alipay that would have otherwise gone to the banks. That, that was factored in. What was problematic, what remains problematic is the loss of the data. Because payments, even in Europe, are something like 80 to 90% of customer interactions with the banking system. That's the bank's primary link with the customer. And if the customers are transacting through Facebook instead of through, you know, their debit cards or the new EPI card or whatever, then the banks don't have any data. And if they don't have any data, they can't do risk management properly, which is a core banking function. And if they can't do risk management properly, it means they can't price better than anybody else. Other people have access to more data. So what I was saying in that article is you have fintechs who make their money from financial services, and you have tech fins who make their money in other ways. And if the tech fins use financial services in order to make money in other ways, they don't need to make money from those financial services. So it's very difficult for the fintechs to compete with them. They can, you know, the, the tech fins can afford to cross subsidize. If you're one of the big techs and you have a business which depends on, for example, making loans to small businesses, you can afford to do that on low, zero, or even negative margins because your actual business case depends on attracting those small businesses into your marketplace or selling advertising to those small businesses or doing lead generation for those small businesses or whatever else it is. So that's the distinction between tech fins and fintechs. The reason why I phrased it in that way in that article, though, as you've mentioned, is because of open banking. So in Europe, we've opted for an open banking model which essentially means the banks have to give all of their data away for free uh, to big tech. And I'm concerned that that means we're not going to have a level playing field. And if we don't have a level playing field, then ultimately that isn't good for competition. Now, that's not a new idea, by the way. I mean, I, I gave talks about this three, four years ago. It's just nobody cared because it's just me going on about it. But of course, now, the people that run the big banks in Europe have started going to the commission and saying, well, this can't be right. This can't be the right way to organize things because it's a highly asymmetric competitive landscape. If Facebook can get access to my bank account and learn all about what I'm doing, but the bank can't have access to Facebook's data, well, then there must be an inevitable benefit to Facebook, right? So it's if the banks have to open up to big tech, but big tech doesn't have to open up to the banks, we're building in um, an anti-competitive environment. So the goal of PSD2, which was to create a more competitive financial and services environment to lower the overall total cost of financial intermediation in Europe, isn't going to be met. 
because we're going to replace one less than optimal competitive situation with another less than optimal competitive situation. So that that's why I wrote the article in that. Right. Way. I mean, I heard some senior executives of banking complaining about this as well. But I think at that time, they they meant that the small fintechs will get uh, the access to their data. Maybe they didn't think about big tech going into this, right? Uh, which is going to be much more you well, know, difficult look, for them. Yes, look, uh, you know, some, some fintechs have, have got access to that data and have done some great things with it. If you look at, I mean, a, an example that springs to mind is Oak North right. in London, who've, made, who've built a great business from, from, from using a, a variety of data sources to make better lending decisions for people. So, so some fintechs have taken that data and done some great stuff with it. But a lot of the fintechs, first of all, they end up having to become banks anyway, because otherwise they can't get their cost of capital down low enough to compete with the banks in that space. But the crisis has caused real problems. I mean, if you look at the figures, the amount of money, I mean, I actually was looking at the German figures yesterday when I was looking at the questions for this guy. You know, I'm not not familiar with every situation in Europe, but I happened to look at the German figures yesterday. And if you look at the amounts of money that are flowing in to the, what you call the traditional banks, it's astonishing. I mean, the you know, people call it a flight to quality, which I think is a rather old-fashioned term. But um, but basically, if you look at the money that's going into those boring old dinosaur traditional banks, compared to um, you know upstart exciting fintech challenges, well, the figures tell their own story. I think it's very very difficult for those non-bank fintech challenges to compete, and even for the fintech challenges that are banks, it's very very difficult. Um, you know, if you look at people, I mean, the examples people always use are people like N26 and Monzo. I think, you know, the, the, the crisis is looking difficult for them, isn't it? Right. Well, you know, let's change tack a little bit and talk about blockchain yeah. and crypto as well, right? And uh, okay. obviously, some people were believing in Bitcoin and they still are. And they, they think this is, you know, it's more than just a currency for, for them, right? But then the incumbents came into this and they started to look at the benefits of blockchain and see, you know, how can they use it themselves. But within a regulated industry, of course, this is an enterprise blockchain that we are talking about, which is generally speaking permission based, right? And uh, things like this. Yeah. So where do you think the applications um, have more future or better future? Is this going to be the original distributed currency or uh, blockchain or the enterprise one and also maybe one small question on the scalability right i mean people talk about it a lot and how they're trying to solve it in the end i'm not sure it was ever sold or whether it will be uh, rather the people try to use the applications and fit them for purpose and scale is or the speed is what it is well look uh let let, let me answer that in um in a couple of different ways. So first of all, in terms of the application of um, blockchain, I mean, I, I hate to keep saying this because I know it annoys everybody, but a blockchain is a very specific technology that solves a very specific problem, which is to do with forming consensus in the presence of untrusted third parties. And that's a problem that basically nobody in the financial system has. Right, because if 
if there's untrusted third parties in your network, you've got much bigger things to worry about than, than whether to switch to blockchain or not. So the idea of enterprise blockchain mutates into the idea of enterprise shared ledgers of some kind, which may be implemented using blockchains, but blockchains can be quite an inefficient way of implementing those things. So then you go into the sort of Libra direction of Byzantium fault tolerant, blah, blah, blah. So if we take away the word blockchain and replace it with the word shared ledgers, do enterprise shared ledgers, ESL, do they have a future? And there, I think the answer is yes. I mean, I know I'd make fun of some of the blockchain people um, for some of their outlandish claims, <clears throat> but I wrote a paper a few years ago with Richard Brown, who's the CTO of R3, and Salome Parilava from Consul Hyperion. I wrote a paper called Ambient Accountability, which talked about the idea of using shared ledgers to achieve some other goal, basically resilience and reliability and ambient accountability. In other words, constructing environments that would sort of audit themselves. I don't want to cause pain in a in a sensitive German environment at the moment, but but you know, you know, the blockchain people say, well, you know, if everything was on the blockchain, how could 1.9 billion euros go missing in Eurocard in Wirecard? Well, they kind of have a point. The technologies of cryptographic blinding, homomorphic encryption, zero knowledge proofs do provide a new way of implementing financial infrastructure, which, uh, contrary to popular belief, won't get rid of banks, but it might well get rid of auditors. So, so the idea of enterprise shared ledger, actually, I, I do think that has considerable merits, you know, all, almost all of which have nothing to do with cryptocurrency. <clears throat> what application might we put on top of those shared ledgers? Again, I'm I'm sticking by my original view about this, which is that the idea of using token essentially solutions to trade digital assets, that to me still 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 seems like a strong idea. Um just because it's cheaper, not because not because of any um ideological devotion to tokens or censorship resistant or anything else. But the idea of trading digital assets in an environment where you don't need any clearing or settlement is very attractive in the financial services space. So I think enterprise shared ledgers, yes. I think uh, sector-wide, that can happen. Can we trade digital assets on top of it? Yes. Will one of those digital assets be um, a cryptocurrency? That I'm less sure about because in my opinion, it's not really clear to me what the demand or requirements for, for cryptocurrency actually are. So <clears throat> could we use some forms of cryptocurrency is, if you like, the underlying security layer for digital asset trading on top? I, you know, I, I can certainly see ways that could happen. I, I'm absolutely prepared to be convinced that that would be true. Um, will one of those digital assets be cryptocurrency? That's not obvious to me. That's not obvious. If you look at the places that are the stress tests for cryptocurrency, I mean, I remember in the early days of Bitcoin, people started going on about Venezuela all the time. Venezuela was the case study where everyone was going to stop using everything else and start using Bitcoin. That's just, that hasn't happened. And the fact that Venezuelan supermarkets accept Zelle in payment, which is the US interbank payment system is amazing to me. You know, they don't have Bitcoin signs in the window, they have Zelle signs in the window. So it's just, I mean, I'm, I'm open to persuasion 
I'm happy to listen to arguments in the other direction, but I'm just, it's not clear to me that there's a real demand for cryptocurrency. Right. Understood. So what's in store for you for the rest of the year? Uh, it's been difficult in terms of events, I guess, right? But, uh, what, <laughs> you know, what are the, well, you're right. where can people see you or hear you? I guess, you know, online events or what have you. Yeah, the, the speaking business has changed a bit in the last few months, as you can imagine. Well, it's interesting because, you know, the, the webinar business and the digital online events business is starting to grow and mutate and develop. I'm involved in some interesting experiments, Finnovate, uh, Merchant Payment Ecosystem Summer Week, uh, Digital Jersey, and later in the year, I hope to be going to Money 2020. So it's interesting to see how the landscape is changing and mixing together the digital and the physical. And I think that's actually really interesting. For one thing, it means I get to I get to go to more events in a way. And you know, the competition for um, you know, lots of people have webinars now. So the competition to make those webinars interesting is is, you know, actually that's good for people like me. Um, so it's interesting to see the business coming back in a different way. So the speaking and events business is changing. Um, my advisory and think tank work is continuing. That's not, that's not changing at all. In fact, because I, I'm on the advisory board of companies that tend to be in the uh, digital identity, digital onboarding space, actually the crisis hasn't been entirely negative for them. But what I'm mainly going to focus on for actually, I want to start, I'm, I'm writing a new book about digital identity at the moment, um, but trying to explore the idea that digital identity is for everything, not just people. So, you know, I've written a book in the past about digital identity for people. But of course, as you look at the new economy that's developing now, because of the Internet of Things and artificial intelligence and all this kind of, all these developments, <clears throat> the need for a kind of more sophisticated, idea of a digital identity infrastructure that applies to everything um you know becomes becomes very interesting and i i want to try and explore that and see what that means so yeah so um i'm writing and uh, it's all good and you know the sun is shining and i'm going to go for a walk by the lake later on so i really can't complain all right well great so where can interested parties find out more about you and learn about your activities they can visit my website, which is www.dgwbirch.com. Or if they want to learn more about the book, go to thecurrencycoldwar.com uh, or Amazon or any of the good bookshops. Actually, and some of the terrible bookshops as well. All right. Well, thank you, Dave, and good luck, uh, good luck to you. Not at all. Thank you very much for interviewing me. I really appreciate it, Rudy. Look forward to talking again soon. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.